And yet the song Sanctuary, Bind Us Together, and I Am Resolved No Longer to Linger, all three of those songs, if I had asked him to pick songs to surround this lesson with, and I had picked the perfect songs, it would have probably been at least two out of those three, if not all three of them. So please be opening your Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, if you would please. And as you're turning there, I just want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to read, this, uh, read the bulletin article for today. There are paper copies out here if you do not get it electronically. If you do not get it via email and you would like to, please let me know and we will make sure that you get put on the email bulletin list. And if you get it in either one of those forms, I really hope you read it because this morning's bulletin, like this morning's songs, um, really go with the lesson. It's the complete package this morning, I guess. Titus chapter two beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. As we read that beautiful text on the grace of God, we see that not only did Jesus come to provide us with eternal life or salvation right there in verse 11, but Jesus also came to provide us all with the best, most beautiful, most joyful, and abundant earthly life possible as well. An earthly life that instead of continuing to live in the worldly and ungodly ways which we once did, instead of continuing to live in the the foolish, selfish, pride-driven pursuits which bring nothing but pain and anger and bitterness and frustration and the total lack of inner peace and comfort and joy. That productive and fulfilling life that God wants us to live. And instead of living in all of those worldly, selfish things that bring nothing but so much aggravation and, and frustration, God came to give us a better earthly life, one that, that gets rid of those things and, and one that is filled with joy and abundance and, and peace and fulfillment that is productive right here on earth pre-eternity as well, just as we see right there in verses 12 through 14, which I read. Not only this incredible eternal life, but this incredible earthly life as well. In fact, if we think about it, we might say, well, I don't know about that. And one of the reasons we might say that is because we're not experiencing that, quite frankly. Even though the Bible says it, and we can see it, and we know it's true because the Bible says it, maybe we wonder about that whole best possible, joyful, fulfilled, earthly life because we're just not experiencing it. 
But that's a truth that Paul goes on to write in even greater detail to Titus about in, in chapter three. Look at the first eight verses of Titus three. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Does that sound like to you be a pretty happy way of life? One that is, one that is ready for every good work, that never says a bad word about anyone, to be peaceable, gentle, to be humble. Does that sound like a pretty joyful life to you? Well, I'll tell you what, it's a real joyful earthly life compared to the verse that follows. By contrast, he says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Which life sounds better to you, verse 2 or verse 3? Well, we all know what the answer is. Somebody that, we don't ever want to be somebody who's consumed with, with hate and anger and bitterness and frustration. But if you look around at the world today, that seems to be so prevalent. But you see, God doesn't want us to live like the world. He wants us to live a much better life. He, he designed us for something better, and he wants us to have something better. And, and that's part of what Jesus came to accomplish. We, we read on in verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Yes, that talks about eternal life. Jesus came to give us eternal life, but notice, the very next verse, he didn't just come to give us just eternal life that's beautiful, he came to give us earthly life that's beautiful as well. Verse eight, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Did Jesus say it's more blessed to give than to receive? Is a life much happier than is a life as a giver rather than a taker? as one who's constantly giving to others and, and being like Jesus and has this peace and this humility and this faith in God rather than somebody that's just filled with all of those other things up there in verse three. Well, yeah, it's a much better earthly life to, to live as God wants us to. And, and Jesus came to show us how to do that. And, and listen, living, this is key, living according to our sinful human earthly nature in whatever form that takes brings not only eternal damnation but also a miserable earthly life and existence as well. Miserable. People consumed with bitterness and frustration and anger and dislike of everybody else that's a miserable way to live. And God came to show us there's a much better way. In fact, this is a point repeatedly made in the scriptures. Go with me, if you would, to Galatians 5. 
In Galatians chapter 5, as we know, very familiar passage, but I want you to look at the contrast as, as we talk about two different ways of life, and, and one being miserable and one being joyful, one having no fulfillment or contentment, and one that is totally fulfilled and contented, and, and one that's instead of full of frustration and anger and bitterness is full of love and peace and security, and that's what we have here as we begin reading in Galatians 5 and verse 16. Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, he's going on to make this contrast, but when we read those words, one of the things we typically do, when we hear that phrase, lust of the flesh, it's like, <gasps> he's talking about, and we, we think of all these heinous, awful sins, I mean, murder and, and all of those sorts of things. We say, well, I would, you know, I, I, I don't murder and I don't, you know, sleep around on my wife or my husband and I don't commit adultery. And so that can't be talking about me. But, you know, as we read the list, some things there that more than just those few things I just mentioned in the lust of the flesh, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. He starts out with those we consider the big ones which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Then he gets to hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath or anger, depending on your translation, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, could read factions or divisions, depending on your version. Envy, those are lusts of the flesh, envy, uh-huh. Murders, drunkenness, revelries and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And not only will they not inherit the kingdom of God eternally, they're gonna be a miserable human being. Miserable human being. But, by contrast, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Boy, can we use more of that in our lives, right? Joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, depending on your version, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And... Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is the things up above there we read first beginning in verse 19. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Provoking could be shortened up, I guess, to poking. Let us not poke at one another and, and become conceited and envy one another. <clears throat> Why? Because that gets back up there to those things that we talked about in verses 19 and following. And he says, those who belong to Christ, they've, they've crucified those things. They've put those things behind them. And again, it's not just so they can inherit eternal life. It's so that they can live a better, more peaceful, fulfilled, contented, joyful, abundant, earthly life as well. It's, it, it's obvious to us that somebody that is consumed with the things in verses 19 through 21 is not a happy camper. They're not. But give me some of that verse 22, 23. 
What a, what a beautiful, unburdened, unhindered way to live. And, and this isn't the only place. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians. Next book up, a few pages. Look at Ephesians 4. This is a constant and reoccurring re or recurring theme in Scripture. In Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. They're alienated from the life of God. They're not living that life of and for and to God. They're, they're, they're alienated from it because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. That is not a pretty life. That is not a, a good life. That is not the good life. But, but he goes on to say in verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Put that off. Put that, put that, that poison, that pollution that's, that's hurting your life so much. Put that aside. Get rid of that garbage. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That is, learn the good life God wants you to live. And that you put on the new man which was recreated according to God in true righteousness and holiness. He goes on to explain how to do that. And I want to take each one of these next few, again, familiar verses and just ask you, who's happier? Who's more at peace? Who has more contentment in their life? He says in verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Not only is lying a sin, not only will lying perpetually keep you out of heaven, not only that, but, but listen, if you've got to lie to this one and that one and some other one, or what we call two-faced, you tell this one something, tell somebody else something else about the same thing, and you're, and you're doing that, and you always got to remember what you said to who so that you don't uncover that you're being fought. What a miserable way to have to live and keep track of things. It's much easier to just tell people straight up and no regrets, no, no problem, no, no worrying about life here or there. It's a much more peaceful existence. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. You can be angry. You can. We get angry as human beings. All of us do. We get upset at things. He said, you can be angry, but don't sin. Don't rip somebody else to shreds just because you're upset. Don't, don't take somebody else who's, who's not guilty of anything towards you and just because you're having a bad day, take it out on them. Be angry, but, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't keep nursing that anger. Don't keep nursing that, that animosity. And, and let it go day after day after day after day because all it's going to do is grow and build like a snowball going downhill. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bigger that snowball of anger gets, the more of, a, of an opportunity Satan has to let you use it to crush somebody with. That's what means giving the devil a foothold. Deal with it before the day's over. Don't let it grow out of proportion. Get rid of it. Brethren, instead of carrying it to bed and, and letting it grow and being consumed and can't sleep at night because you're so angry and upset with somebody and letting it go on for six months or a year, what a miserable life. God says, no, that there's a better way. There, there's a contented way. Don't give, don't give the Satan that opportunity to cause you to lose your soul or rip somebody else up. Don't let the sun go down on it. That's the better way. Verse 28, let him who steal, him who Stole steal, I can say that. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him 
who has need. Jesus himself said it's better to give than to receive. Don't steal so that you've got a guilty conscience. You don't have to steal from somebody. It's amazing to me, and I, I go back to it. People were stealing from the Hope Harbor box out here. Y'all would come up and people would come up and put kids' shoes and toys and stuff in there like when you clean out and your kids have outgrown them. And, and we sit there on at least three, I believe it was three different occasions to watch people pull up to that blue box to, to help the kids at Hope Harbor up there grab bags out of there and just strew stuff all over the place. And, and then, as y'all know, they drilled a hole in the church gas tank out here. And one of the brothers said, if somebody needs help with their electric or something and they had to steal gas, come see us. We'll give them 20 bucks for gas. We'll, you know, we'll help people. That's what we're here for. It's amazing to me what people will steal. God says that's not, that those are not happy. That's not the best way. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That doesn't just mean cursing. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. When you walk away from a conversation with somebody, you should have said something to them that was encouraging, encouraging, not discouraging. We all have our faults and our flaws and our failures, and if we wanted to, we could pick each other apart. But he said, don't do that. Don't let a corrupt word come out of your mouth. Look for that which is good and pure and righteous, he'd say in Philippians 4. And, and, and say what is good for necessary edification. Give grace to others. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Because it grieves him when we're not living that good life. Not only when we're not living that good life that will give us a great eternal life, but when we're not living that good life that will give us a great earthly life as well. So he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. But get rid of it. That's garbage. You don't need that in your life. It's only going to mess you up. And be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. You know what the problem is with being tender-hearted? There's a big problem with being tender-hearted. you know what it is? You get your heart broke a lot. When you are tender-hearted and you, you give people the benefit of the doubt all the time and, and, and you're just a tender-hearted, loving, caring person, you're going to get walked on at times. You're going to get busted up. Do it anyway. Jesus did it. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And then he goes on again to say, but don't do all these things. All these things are just going to make your life a mess. Listen, the results of sinful human pride or the human nature or whatever you want to call it has left every one of us, whether it's on our own part or the part of others, it has left all of us at times feeling empty, hurt, scarred, scared. The human nature on whether it's us doing it to others and, and, and that selfishness and, and all of that stuff that we've read about, when we, when we do it to others or we have others do it to us, we've all been hurt by that. Perhaps it's left us feeling alone or angry or frustrated or bitter or discouraged, but that's the way the human nature works. That is what the human nature consists of, constantly produces, and consistently causes. 
What we read about in Galatians 5.20, that's what hatred does. That's what contentions and jealousies and outbursts of anger and selfish ambition and dissensions and heresies do. It's what the outright ugliness described in James 4, 1 through 4 does. In other words, when we live like that or others live like that and do it to us or we do whatever, that is just the plain and simple ongoing misery and frustration that a life driven by anything less than the Spirit of God produces. And it is in complete opposition to the beautiful life, the peaceful life, the joy-filled life, the giving, forgiving life that God desires for and shows us how to live while we are right here. I'd, I'd like to give you an illustration this morning that for me works pretty well. Hopefully it does for you as well. I'd like to do it with this. The lives of those who live for and according to their own desires today, or the desires of the flesh, or the desires of the human nature, sinful nature, however you want to put it, I think are pretty well represented by this once pristine, but now empty, rusted out, rotting away, and steadily deteriorating hulk of a car. This car is being eaten up by the elements day by day. It's rotten away. And it can't do anything to help itself. It's, it's had its wheels taken off. It is completely at the mercy of the elements that are ravaging and destroying it. It has no protection whatsoever from the storms and the situations that are slowly consuming it. And, and as, as I look at that, for me, this is what a lot of people's lives look at today. It's where Satan wants to take us all. And it doesn't matter how many millions of dollars they have, how much power they might possess, or how highly popular they might be. When you stand at the checkout line, look at the trash magazines, look at some of these things, look at some of the news headlines on your, on your cell phone. People have millions of dollars that are not necessarily happy campers. If they were, they wouldn't need to be in drug rehab so much. Their lives are empty, they're rusted, they're deteriorating. Truth be told, they are not happy or fulfilled or contented. They are not at peace, they are not living, I don't care who they are. They are not living that beautiful and abundant life that God has modeled and made possible. Instead, their lives are eaten up with sin, they're eaten up with self-indulgence, they're eaten up with always seeking, but never quite finding that living in abundant joy that God so, so much wants us to have. Enter God. Enter God. God, our creator, knows. He knows what we can be. He knows what we ought to be. He knows what he wants us to be. He knows how incredibly fulfilled and abundant he designed and desires for our lives to be. He knows the beauty he wants our lives to have. He knows the beauty that he is able to restore in us to the uttermost. He knows the joy that he is able to give us, the joy that should transform us into that. God knows, and, and he wants to transform us into that. He wants to take that, that empty, deteriorating hulk of a life lived for, for the lust that we read about and, and all of those nasty things, and he wants to turn us into that. 
So he sent his only begotten son to be the payment for our sins with this outcome in mind. When we decide that we want to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Acts 2.38, we are placed in Christ, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. It is at that point we are purchased with the blood of Christ, Acts 20 and verse 28, and that we are covered by his blood and protected from the further ravages or having to pay the price for our sins, Romans 5, 1 through 11. That would be the equivalent of this thing here, this old beat up being eaten up by the elements car, it would be the equivalent of that being purchased by somebody. Not only being purchased by somebody, but being moved into this very new, beautiful, modern facility that is made for restoring vehicles. It would be the equivalent, when we are baptized into Christ, when we are purchased and paid for, and we are placed in Christ, we are moved into this place where God can work on us. Just like this old car being put in this beautiful garage with all the tools and all the, the equipment so that piece by piece and day by day it can be remade, not eaten up by the elements anymore, not sitting out there in the storms anymore, but so that God could take this and now begin the restoration process to turn this into this. As a sidebar, Quick sidebar. You know how we in Christ sometimes have heard it said by preachers or read about it or said ourselves, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus if we're in Christ. We've all heard something like that, right? When, when God looks at us, instead of seeing us, he sees, because we're covered by the blood of Christ, he sees Christ. Uh, I want you to think about that relevant to this car. When, the own, when, when that old piece of junk is purchased by somebody you know what he's thinking about? How to make it look like that. You know, as he drags it into his garage and undercover in this nice heated garage with all of these, these up-to-date tools so that he can restore it, you know what he sees every time he looks at that old piece of junk? He sees what he wants it to be. He sees what he knows it can be. He sees the perfection and the beauty of a complete restoration, that he has the tools and equipment to make it. He sees the promise within it and all that he wants it to be, the joy and the beauty and the abundance that he wants this thing to be. But here's where it gets intense for the car. Even though this car piece of junk sitting out there, as we saw in the previous picture, has been bought and paid for, just like we've been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. And even though this, this car, this old junk, has been moved in undercover so they can make it over into that, we too have been moved in undercover by the blood of Christ. And the master restorer, God, has all the tools and equipment he needs to restore us not just in his eyes, because we're perfect in his eyes the moment that we're covered by the blood, not just in his eyes, but he has the tools and the capabilities and the talent and the ability to restore us to our beautiful, former, pristine state and our lives as well. But where it gets labor intense is this. Number one, whether you're talking about the car or us, it takes years 
to go from that to that. And it takes God years to work on us, to take us from what we used to live like that we've read about in Titus and Galatians and Ephesians up to what he wants us to be like and enjoy that, that beautiful life. It takes great care and patient endurance. It takes great cost. It is labor intensive. And that's just on the part of the one in storing, uh, restoring the car. Here's where it gets real serious. What if the car, this version of the car, what if the car, instead of being an inanimate object, were a living, breathing human being like we are? What if it had to give its permission for every bolt cut off, for every cut that had to be made with a cutting torch, what if the car felt pain like we do? You see, the, the, the place here that, that we have to understand the analogy, and it works pretty good to this point, is in order, God's got the tools and equipment to make us everything he wants us to be. Is that right? And it's a process, right? It takes years. Uh-huh. None of us have reached perfection yet. Okay? But here's the key. The car is an inanimate object. It doesn't feel the changes, but we have to personally allow God to work on us. We can tell God no anytime. God says, that habit needs to be cut out. I'm gonna cut out and say, oh no you're not. I'm keeping that one. See, we feel the pain when, when God has to cut off a rusted piece of metal. We, we feel the pain when God has to take some of that envy or, or, or dissensions or outbursts of wrath. We feel the pain when God says, that's got to go. And the only way God's going to do it is if we let him do it. He, he won't operate against our will. That's the one difference here. What if this car had to give its permission and felt the painful effect of every bolt or bad habit that had to be cut off? What if, like us, it felt the painful effect and had to give its permission for every piece or every practice, it had to have pulled from it. What if it felt the pain of every weld or worldly practice that had to be cut out and gotten rid of? What if it felt like we do? Every new level of performance or enhancement that is now expected of it? Or what if it felt and had to give its permission for every adjustment or calibration challenge. It had to have forced upon it in order to make it over into this. Would the car do it? Would it be worth it? Would it undergo it? Question we need to ask ourselves, obviously, we can't ask an inanimate object, are we willing? to take the pain of every bad habit practice, worldly practice, everything that has to be removed. Are we willing to let God cut it all off through his word, which is the tool he uses amongst others? Are we willing to undergo that? How is the only way that I am able to undergo that? How, how can I give God yes permission? Well, hopefully when I was baptized, I, I put myself under his authority and control in all things. That's the way it's supposed to have worked. 
But you know what else would, would really help me to say, yes, God, yes, I'm willing to change. I'm willing for you to take away. I don't want to envy anymore. I don't want to hate anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to, 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 to be uh, causing factions or I don't want to you know, do this or that or something else. You know, you know what would make me, besides the fact that I committed to that when I was baptized, you know what else would help me? If like the owner, I kept in mind the final product. Do you want to be beautiful in the eyes of God? Don't be beautiful in the eyes of the rest of the world. Do you want to be that shining light? And you've got to give God permission to get rid of the bad stuff. He's got to get the junk out. Because we didn't used to live for God. And so we've got to give him permission, even when it hurts, to cut some of that stuff out of our lives so that we can go from this to this. And if I just keep in mind the finished product and where I want to be and in heaven and I want to be there, but not only do I want to be there, I, listen, some of you people that have lived over half a century, you're 50 years old plus, and I don't ask you to raise your hand, nod your heads, or any of that stuff, but listen, aren't there times in your life that you could have used a little bit more joy, a little bit more fulfillment, being a little bit more at peace, having a little bit more comfort, and it doesn't take somebody 50 to say yes to that. We all could, I, I, I want to I I be. I want that abundant life. Jesus came to die not just to give me eternal life that's beautiful, but to give me an earthly life that's beautiful. But in order for me to, to enjoy that, I've got to give him permission to, to do the stuff that hurts, to get rid of the bad stuff, to get the junk out of there. So what are some of these changes the Lord wants to make in our lives now that he has purchased us at great cost, moved us in under cover and protection from the elements, and has all the tools at his disposal in order to take us from this to this? What are a few of the much needed changes that God so desperately wants to make in our lives, but that he can't and won't if we don't give him permission? He tells us places like Colossians chapter 3. Please turn there. Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5, God tells us what needs to be cut off and torn out and what he wants to put in and replace it with. Colossians 3, beginning verse 5, it says, Therefore put to death, and by the way, this is after they're purchased or baptized. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1, because they've been raised up out of the waters of baptism, which he talked about in chapter 2. But beginning again after you're baptized in chapter 3 and verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, when you looked like that, if you were a car. But now you are to put all these off. You know, when we look up there in verses 5 through 7, again, this is stuff that we as Christians say, well, come on, man, I'm a better Christian than that. I don't do those things. Right, okay, true, but verse 8 is part of that list as well. Other things you are to put off include anger. Because anger will eat you up. Wrath. Because wrath will eat you up. Malice. Because malice will eat you up. Just like the elements. Blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. See, you're bought and you're, you're being transformed 
You, you've been purchased, and it's the knowledge of God. It's this book, which is the tool. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, uh, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, so God's going to use his welding torch, and he's going to cut off all of the rusted material and the front fender and, and, and the, the, do whatever he has to do here to try to fix me. Okay, so when he cuts all of that off and all of the rot and all of that, that garbage on there that's just deteriorating away, when he cuts that off, when he cuts off all of these things the, the, that he's talked about, what's he going to put on there? Well, he tells us in verse 12 what he's going to replace it with. New fenders, new shine, new tires. Listen, do you see there's no tires on this? You see the doors missing? See, that car is just a mess. But, but when you look at this, it's like, look at those tires. Wouldn't you like a set of those? <laughs> Maybe you want some of you younger folks, but some of us that, you know, come from a different era. Look at the hubcaps. I mean, that car is absolutely stunning. But we've got all this junk on us, so, so what does God have to put on? Well, verse 12, therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, after you tear that other stuff out, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. That sound like a good life? That sound like a contented, peaceful, powerful, joyful, abundant, happy life? Does it? It does to me. Notice this is written to the church. The church needs to be this way with one another, just like all of these cars, because all of these cars that, that are in this restoration place, just like all of us souls that are in this church, we still got flaws. We're still a work in progress. We're still, some of us still up on jacks. Some of us still having rust cut off. Some of us are a little further along in the process. Some of us have already got some, you know, a new hood or, or whatever, and we've got, you know, joy and kindness in place of some of the other stuff that used to be there. But, but all the cars are, are being worked on, and they're all on different phases. And so we have to be patient with one another and, and kind and, and those sorts of things. And, and notice what he says in verse 14, above all, above all, put on love. This is a love that does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, and keeps no record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, as one translation translates it. Let me read it again. This is that kind of love. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. What kind of love is this? that he's talking about in Colossians 3.14. It's a love that covers, covers, instead of advertising the perceived sins and failures and shortcomings of others. Love covers a multitude of sins. Suppose there's some things in the transformation from that to that. He suppose there's some rough spots that needed to be covered up. Right? Not just cut out, but covered up well. Yeah. You know, 
Last Sunday night, we talked about the woman at the well. We know the woman at the well had had five husbands and she was shacking up with a guy then. Did you notice when Jesus, this is something I didn't really think too awful much about, but in, in light of our sermon today, did you notice that when the disciples come back from buying food or getting food in town, did you notice what Jesus did not say? Jesus never said, when they marveled that he'd been talking to a woman, he could have said, were he human totally and not God, he could have said, yeah, I was talking to a woman and you don't know the half of it. Let me tell you about this girl. She'd been married five times and she's living with somebody. Jesus never said that, did he? He loved her and he offered her salvation. He did not hang her faults sins and shortcomings out there. How much better a life is it when we live verses 12 through 15 of Colossians 3 rather than verses 5 through, 10 of, 5 through 9 of Colossians 3? How does God, I mean, this, this is the key. This is a better earthly life when we let that stuff go. How does God work us over? How does God get us to, what are the tools that he uses to accomplish this? I want to give you three, and the third one may surprise you, especially in the second part of the third one. First tool that God uses, I mean, if you're going to restore a car from what this was to what it is, you're going to use a, a multiplicity of tools on it, from, from grinders to cutting torches. I mean, you're going to use all kinds of tools on this thing, okay? Well, God uses several different tools on us in order to change us over and transform us into what we ought to be. Uh, 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 perfect, if you will. First off, the written word of God. We all know, and I've said several times, that's one of the tools God uses, the word of God. The more we read it, if we do what it says, we are transformed. That's number one. Number two is the walking word of God. That is the Lord Jesus in example as well as teaching. Jesus, we look at Jesus' example, not just what the written word says, but what the walking word did. We look at his example, we look at his teaching in places like Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Then we look at how he lived it the night he was crucified. Jesus, listen, Jesus come out of the garden that night, going to the cross, and he was at peace. He prayed three times to his father, come out of there, and as it says in Matthew 26, be, look, behold, my, let us be going, my betrayer is coming. Jesus come out of that garden that night at peace, perfect peace, with no malice on his mind, with no hatred in his heart, and with no revenge in his thoughts and without carrying any grudge to the cross. Jesus knew what abundant life meant. And Jesus showed us the incredible beauty of a life lived in harmony with God's will, and especially when it comes to the end of this earthly sojourn. sojourn. Third tool in his shop. What is the third tool in God's shop that he uses to transform us? one another in both a good way and a bad way 
A third tool that he uses to accomplish this complete makeover or restoration to pristine condition is a two-way tool like a torch. A torch is a two-way tool. You can use a torch to cut something off, a nut that's on a bolt that's rusted that you can't get off, like, like maybe down where the wheels were or whatever. You use a torch to cut, but don't you also use a torch to weld pieces on that need to be? See, it can go both ways. A socket set can be used both ways to take off something that needs to come off or to tighten up something and put something on that needs to be put on. And one of the two-way tools God uses to help us to return to this type of condition is one another. It's a tool that can be used for good when we encourage and edify and build one another up. Don't that feel good? It can be used initially for bad as well, such as some of the things we sometimes say that hurt one another discourage one another, demean one another, frustrate one another. You know why that can be a tool that takes us back to pristine condition even though it's bad? You know why? Because here's why. And I could spend sermons on these, but I won't. Just listen carefully and think about it. Because you're never going to love like Jesus loved until you've been hurt like Jesus was hurt. We all want to love like Jesus, right? You can't love like Jesus until you have been rejected and abandoned like Jesus. Sometimes our brethren will do that to us. You cannot forgive like Jesus. We all want to forgive like Jesus. He's our example. That's right. But in order to forgive like Jesus, you have to have the type of incidents he had put against him to forgive. Forgiveness means there was a crime committed, if you will. You can't learn to forgive like Jesus until you have experienced the rejection and abandonment like Jesus. And sometimes our brethren can do that to us. But God can use it as a learning tool to help us be more like Jesus. The bottom line is that God will save you through the blood of his son. He'll purchase you even if you're that old piece of junk out there and your life's been eaten up by sin, you're not happy, you're discouraged, you're, you're angry, you're whatever you are. God's willing to buy you and, and put you under the cover of the blood. But then, once you're under the cover of the blood and you're, you're in under his wing and you're in the church, there's a second part to this, and that's what the bulletin article is about, is that you've got to allow God to do the cotton and a replacing that he needs to do. Because brethren, there is nothing on earth that is more beautiful or more satisfying or more fulfilling or more peace providing than a life lived allowing God to give you that better life day by day. There's nothing any better. A life where fear is replaced by faith, hatred is replaced by love, and fighting is replaced with forgiveness. A place where anger and wrath and criticism and harsh judgments are cut off, torn out, ripped up and replaced with loving kindness, encouragement, understanding and edification. A life where brethren who occasionally fail to meet our expectations are loved and protected and encouraged and strengthened so that one day they may be grown to a point where they can meet our expectations again. 
A life where enemies are prayed for instead of prayed upon, Matthew 5, 43 through 45. Where enemies are talked to instead of talked about, Matthew 18, 15. And where they are provided for instead of persecuted, Romans 12, 14 through 21. There is no greater life, no sweeter life, no more bountiful or beautiful or rewarding or pristine life here on earth than the one that is purchased by the blood placed under the protection of the blood and allows God to work on that one to make them all that they can be. That's what the 23rd Psalm is all about, this, this process of allowing God to have his way. It's also what God himself, when he was here in the flesh, said he came to give us. Last passage of the morning, keep this in mind. God himself, not, not just what Paul wrote to Titus or to the Galatian churches, but Christ himself kind of life he said he came here to give us when he was here. He told us that. Places like John 10 and verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That word abundantly is an adjective which according to Strong's means over and above, exceeding abundantly, supremely something further much more than all when Jesus said I came that they might have life abundantly it means much more than all extraordinary surpassing uncommon more remarkable more excellent that's the kind of life here on earth that Jesus came to give us if we'll just let him work us over the way we've talked about Where's your life today? Are you here? Are you somebody that sought for that inner peace and contentment and happiness and joy, that abundant life, but every time you think you get close to it, it just all falls apart and, and the storms come and they cause more rot inside of you. The storms of life hit and, and they make you more angry and frustrated and disappointed and they just keep eating away and eating away and there's nothing you can do. You've got no wheels. You can't move. You can't help yourself. You're not undercover. Is that where you're at? Or? Are you somebody who is in the process of being worked on? Maybe. You've got a lot of confusion in your life. You don't know where everything fits together. You don't know how to make it all work together. It's all just kind of sitting there. You know that, that your life could be better, but you just don't know how to make it all happen. Or, if you're in that condition, are you ready this morning to let God purchase you by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that he can make you into this? Or are you somebody he's working on who's really hurting and saying, man, I just can't give that sin up? Or somebody who still struggles with anger and frustration and all of those things. We'll pray for you. We'll baptize you if you need to be purchased. We'll pray for you if you need to have a little bit more willingness to let God work on you despite the pain. Whatever we can do, the whole point of God buying you is so that you could have an abundant eternal life, or of Christ coming, was so you could have an abundant eternal life, but so you could also have this incredible abundant earthly life. If you do not have those two things this morning, that's not on God. It's on you. God will give them to you. But it's up to you to, to make sure you're willing to take them. If you have a need, please come to the front as we stand and say.